Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Greetings to all of you on this beautiful weekend. I want to welcome all those uh, tuning in from one of our regionals, the Crowfoot Theatres in Northwest Calgary, our regionals in Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. Also want to welcome our online viewers. We are in a three-part sermon series titled The Temptation Trap. And in this series, we take a closer look at how Jesus resisted temptations. And I want to share practical lessons that we can use in our day-to-day lives. Australian wildlife expert Steve Irwin has been nicknamed the Crocodile Hunter. He received worldwide fame with his television series. You know, we all know Steve for his daring adventure with the wild. Steve and his wife, Terry, spent their honeymoon trapping crocodiles. Oh, the joys of being married to a crocodile hunter. Steve, as you know, would fearlessly leap on the back of a giant crocodile, walk alongside a deadly Komodo dragon, and literally hold poisonous snakes in his hand. His risk-taking ability made him a hero and a world-renowned figure. Steve had several close shaves with death during the 14 years of his documentary. He survived countless snake bites, was chased up a tree by a huge Komodo dragon, spat in the face by a spitting cobra, and pulled into the water by a massive crocodile. At age 44, Steve's life came to a premature end in the most unexpected way. When filming for a kid's show, Steve died when he was attacked by a stingray. Stingrays are considered to be one of the least fiercest creatures in the sea. In fact, they call them the pussycats of the sea. They don't attack except for the purpose of self-defense. Steve Irwin the man who had dodged some of the wildest, fiercest animals, died of an unexpected attack from a docile sea creature. It's an important lesson as we apply this to temptation. The areas where we perceive ourselves to be the strongest are those very areas we are least prepared for battle and therefore the most vulnerable. Oswald Chambers once said, Unguarded strength is double weakness. Temptation comes unaware at a time in life when we are least prepared for battle. And we give a foothold to the enemy when we give in to some of those harmless, docile, non-threatening temptations of life. And before you know, the enemy strikes a killer blow. The temptation trap is intended to derail you of the life God has called you to live. Last weekend, we focused on the first temptation of Jesus to turn stones into bread. And it was a temptation to act independently of God. And I also gave you the first key to resisting temptation. It is written, the power of God's word. We're going to focus on the second temptation today, and I'll share with you the second key to resisting temptation. I'm going to ask us to stand up as we read our passage of Scripture together. 
taken from Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 to 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Shall we pause for a moment of prayer and ask God to speak to us today? Father, we commit this time into your hands because this is your time. And we believe that you want to speak to us. That in itself is amazing, Lord. That we can come together corporately and hear your voice through the teaching of your word. So we pray that your voice will be heard clearly, vividly, personally. God, that as you speak to us, we pray for a deep and powerful work of your spirit that, Lord, you will move in our midst freely. We give you full freedom. Do what you want to accomplish in our lives through the service. So we give ourselves to you and we pray this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Or you may be seated. In any major world sport, teams size up their opponents. They watch videos and carefully plot strategies to exploit the weaknesses of the opposition. That's the kind of enemy we have in Satan. An enemy who is cunning, who knows and studies our predictable patterns, and carefully plots our fall. And that is why we should never underestimate the craftiness of Satan. Jesus had just resisted the first temptation to turn stones into bread. He anchored himself on the truth of God's word. He said to the devil, it is written. But Satan was not in a mood to give up. This time he comes back with another temptation and tries to back Jesus into a corner by quoting from the Bible. Satan, in essence, was saying, if you think that you can use the Bible to resist my temptation, I will use the Bible itself to plot your fall. So the devil takes Jesus to the holy city of Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. And this was the temptation. Throw yourself down. Now, on the outset, this seems like a totally absurd, ridiculous suggestion. Now, why would this proposition to perform a crazy stunt be appealing to Jesus and ever be a strong temptation? And how is this even applicable for us today? You have to know this, that for the first 30 years of his life, Jesus lived anonymously. The world did not know that he was the Messiah or the Savior. Jesus was a small town boy raised in Nazareth, a population of about 2,000 people. And Nazareth is so insignificant that it's not even mentioned once in the Old Testament. So Jesus was Mary and Joseph's boy, following the footsteps of his dad to be a carpenter. 
For 30 years, Jesus lived in anonymity. No miracle, no preaching, no public attention. Jesus was just another kid in the block. Alicia Britt Cole, in her phenomenal book titled Anonymous, Jesus' Hidden Years and Yours, writes these words. Listen to me carefully. Hidden hopes, hidden dreams, hidden gifts. All of us are acquainted with chapters in life when our visible fruitfulness is pruned back. Our previously praiseworthy strengths become dormant. And our abilities are unnoticed by the watching world. Like a flower whose budding glory is covered by wet leaves, we sense the weight of hiddenness in our hearts. And we whisper, I have so much more to give and to be. Some of you know exactly what this is talking about. The feeling of being unnoticed. You've been in that season of life before. Or maybe you are in that season right now. The spotlight is not on you anymore. And you feel like you have been sidelined or displaced. The spotlight was not on Jesus either for the first 30 years of his life. The baptism of Jesus was the first step out of hiddenness. It was supposedly the start of Jesus' public ministry. And that explains why he was immediately confronted by the devil. Because Satan did not want Jesus to begin his ministry. At the very beginning, he wanted to attack Jesus to disqualify him from being the savior of the world. And this was the lure, the bait that Satan just dangled before Jesus. Jesus, you're starting your ministry. Start with a bang. Let everyone take notice of who you are. You jump off the pinnacle of the temple and there's a crowd in the marketplace that will see this spectacular stunt. And they will say, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's the super messiah that has come to rescue us. Satan whispered, Jesus, let the world know who you are. Let the people open their mouth in awe of your giftedness. Mesmerize them with your miracles and they will love you to death. The Jewish people were longing for the Messiah to come. He was the deliverer. The one who would break free the political rule of the empires and institute the rule of God. So there was this assumption that the Messiah would make a glamorous entry. So in popular Jewish thought, there was the expectation that the Messiah would show up in the temple in a spectacular fashion and reveal his identity. The Jews missed the picture of the Messiah painted in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 verses 1 to 3 is translated like this in the Message Bible. Who believes what we have heard and seen? Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over. 
A man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him, and people turned away. We looked on, on him, thought he was scum. Now, with this background, you can better understand why this second temptation must have been appealing to Jesus. Because it was a temptation to bypass Isaiah chapter 53. To be an attractive savior. To be the stunning Messiah adored by everyone. A Messiah you can't take your eyes off. Now how does that temptation look like today? Is there any relevance for us? Absolutely. There's a natural longing within all of us for the applause and adoration of the world. It starts when we are little. If you have a toddler in your home like we do, you know this, that they will perform a dance, a, a crazy stunt, jump up and down, climb. And the first reaction is to just look around and see who is... You know, that is a very innocent thing and, and we enjoy that, right? And it is so important for us as parents to affirm our children, make them feel valued. But that need for applause and approval grows more and more as we become older. Soon our significance becomes based on the approval of others, of what others think of us. Our entire worth, our identity is dictated by others' opinion of us. Again, Alicia Britko makes this poignant statement. The longing for human affirmation in itself is not sinful. But living for that longing is both self-serving and short-sighted. You know, granted that as human beings, we all are wired in that way, that we look for the affirmation of those who are closest to us. That is normal. But when approval becomes a driving force in your life, then we start making all of our decisions using a wrong filter. What will people think rather than what is the right thing to do? And soon we start doing certain things just to gain the approval of people. We desperately want to look good in the eyes of others, to stand a few inches taller over the rest. And we construct a false self. We project a different image of ourselves to the world. We start wearing a mask. It's called image management. Always communicating a better image than who we really are. And that is why the appeal to win everyone's attention is constantly highlighted in our advertising and marketing. If you buy this product or use our service, you will stand out. You will be unique. You will look great. Everyone will adore you. And you will be the center of the world's attention. A magazine ad says, get noticed with visibly softer lips. Anything wrong with soft lips? No. But if it is in order to gain the visibility of others and, and draw attention to you, if it is so you can be another Angelina Jolie, we got a problem. Because we are shooting at the wrong target. Men are not exempted either. 
If you don't have the latest iPhone, you are outdated. If you don't sport the latest gadgets, then you don't belong. Drive this car and you will be the envy of the whole neighborhood. Isn't this crazy that advertisers will want to sell you products just so you can make other people jealous? What's behind that appeal? To be spectacular, to look stunning, and earn the applause and adoration of the world. I was pondering if I should go here. I've ruffled some feathers already. So I'll say this on a lighter note. The term selfie has become so common in our language that selfie has entered Oxford English Dictionary as a legitimate word. And in fact, it was the word of the year in 2013. So it is described as when an individual holds a camera or smartphone at arm's length and takes a picture of their face. And one study estimates that a third of all photographs taken by age group 18 to 24 are selfies. And I was just wondering, just speculating, what is behind this craze with selfies? A photo of the Pope posing with young fans at the Vatican went viral on social media with reports that this was the first ever papal selfie. I did a wedding in the summer where the couple took a selfie of their kiss. You know, I don't have anything against selfie per se, but I do wonder, are we guilty of turning ourselves into a brand that people will like? And we determine our worth by the likes on our Facebook page, the retweets we get, the oohs and the ahs over the photos that we post. That was the second temptation of Jesus, to be a Messiah who will keep people spellbound, that people will go ooh and ah, that he will gain a huge fan following to please everybody and be loved by everybody. And how Jesus handled this temptation will help us to resist similar temptations in our own life. We see in our passage, Satan backs up the temptation with a Bible verse. Isn't this a fascinating thought that Satan studies the Bible? Some of us Christians find it hard to be faithful in reading the Bible, but you find that Satan studies the Bible diligently, but with the sole purpose of distorting the truth. So Satan quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, to Jesus. Find this in verse 6 of our passage. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus, you can do this stunt because you are the anointed. You have certain special privileges. And God will not even let you stub your toe. It's written in the Bible. If you take Bible verses out of context, you can make the Bible say anything under the sun. You know, all through history, we've had cults claiming that they teach the Bible only to distort the truth. 
A lot of damage can be done when we take Bible verses out of context. People have stopped taking required medication. They've divorced and remarried, quit jobs, practiced slavery, bombed abortion clinics, and started hate campaigns, all using the Bible to justify their actions. And here Satan was using the Bible to give Jesus all the more incentive to gain the approval and applause of the world. And this is how Jesus responded, verse 7. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. It is also written. Here is practical advice for you. You never arrive at a doctrine based on a single verse in the Bible. You always look for the whole counsel of God's word. What else the Bible has to say on a particular subject. So Jesus proves to Satan that the scripture he quoted was out of context. Psalm 91 does not teach God's people will never have troubles. But troubles will never triumph over the people of God. For Jesus to expect God's protection over a reckless act was not faith. He would be guilty of manipulating God, testing him, and abusing God's promises. It will be deliberately putting him in a spot of bother just in order to twist God's hand to save him. Jesus recognized that. See, God's promises are there for us when we need them. But we never manipulate situations or circumstances in our life in order to appropriate those promises. When you say, Lord, I'm marrying a non-Christian because I know you're going to save this person very soon, you are manipulating God. When you stop taking a required medication and you say, I'm walking by faith, Lord, heal me, you are manipulating God. When you make up your mind to commit a deliberate act of sin and presume on God's forgiveness that he will forgive you anyway, you are manipulating God. And Jesus looked at the devil and he looks at us today and he says, dare not test the Lord your God. And he quotes the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 6.16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. In Massa, the Israelites tested God. They accused God of abandoning them in the desert without water. And this was their attitude. God, we are your people and it is your job to supply all our needs. So when we are thirsty, you got to give us water now. Because you exist to serve our needs. They tested God. And that was Jesus' second temptation. Satan wanted Jesus to manipulate and test God with a conditional cross. Use the privileges of a sonship to twist the hand of God. If I am your son, then make me spectacular, make me look good in the eyes of people. How did Jesus respond to this temptation? He remained confident in God's affirmation of his life. 
And that's where the baptism of Jesus comes into play. It's a significant event in the Gospels. And the baptism and the temptation narratives go together. You cannot separate them. And these are the words recorded at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The heavens opened. Something dramatic was about to happen. A revelation was going to come from above. The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, empowered him, and commissioned him for public ministry. And at that very moment, Jesus hears an audible voice from God. This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. With him, I am well pleased. God stamped his mark of approval on Jesus' life. Before Jesus had preached one sermon, before he had healed one person, before he had saved one soul, the father was affirming the son and saying, our relationship is not based on your performance, but it is in the fact that I am your father and you are my son and I'm so proud of you. I love you. And it is this affirmation that kept Jesus going all through his life and ministry. He walked confidently and his ministry flowed out of that affirmation. It gave Jesus the identity, security, and significance that he needed. And that is why as you read the Gospels, you will see that Jesus was never carried away by public opinion. He didn't care even for the opinion of his family members. He confidently rested on his identity as the Father's own and only Son. Now when Satan tempts us today in this very area of approval addiction, to dazzle before others just so you can earn their applause and adoration, how do we resist that temptation? Just as Jesus did. The first key, as we saw last weekend, is it is written, the power of God's word. And the second key to overcoming temptation is this, the power of your identity in Christ. If we don't know our identity, if we don't know our position, we will manipulate God and we will manipulate people in order to gain affirmation. But the good news is this, those very words that Jesus heard at his baptism is being spoken over us today. If you have the sensitivity to hear God, you will hear those very words from him. The father looks at you and me and he says, you are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Before we have done anything significant or noteworthy, God speaks these words of affirmation over us. Tell you it is one thing to believe these things here. But when this simple truth just permeates into the depth of your heart, 
It changes the course of your life. This single affirmation of our identity in Christ brings a sense of security and confidence that nothing else in this world can offer you. I know some of us carry wounds from the past when people have let us down. People who should have loved us fail to show us love. People who should have given us affirmation fail to offer that much-needed affirmation. And as a result, we have bought into this lie that somehow our life is not significant and that we feel very small on the inside. Even after years, we suffer from the consequences of those hurts. We have low self-esteem and low self-image. But I have news for you. The best parental love and affirmation is not enough. The best spousal love and affirmation is not enough. The affirmation of millions of people in this world is not enough. Just speak to our celebrities and they will tell you how empty they are. And that is because we have a heart that only God's love and God's affirmation can satisfy. And that's what Jesus Christ gives to us freely. We have two boys. I'll tell you, it will hurt me very deeply if our boys were to try to earn my love. If the motivation for their good behavior and staying away from pranks is out of fear that I will somehow stop loving them, that'll break my heart. But how many of us are guilty of making our relationship with God performance-based? David Benner in his book, The Gift of Being Yourself, says, an identity grounded in God would mean that when we think of who we are, the first thing that would come to mind is our status as someone who's deeply loved by God. Is that true of you? Is that the first thing that comes to your mind as you reflect on your identity, that you're loved by God? God loves you with an intensity that you can not just imagine, but you can actually experience in Christ. And it has nothing to do with your behavior, your performance. He loves you just as you are. In Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17, it says, For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. Hear this. Hear this. God delights in you. He is so proud of you. He loves you so much that he sings over you for joy because of the approval and affirmation he has over your life. He never stops thinking about you, not for a moment. And I don't care if you're the Prime Minister of Canada. Your identity is not based on your title, your accomplishment, what others think about you. Your primary identity is grounded first and foremost in knowing you are a child of God. If you believe this to be true, 
from here, the depth of your heart, it will bring a great sense of freedom, security, and joy in your life. That doesn't mean that we no longer look for affirmation from others, but we don't live in order to gain that affirmation. That's a big difference. I'll close with this true story. There are parts of India where families value sons more than daughters. As a result, female babies have been aborted or neglected at an alarming rate. Sometimes when they find the news that it's, it's a girl, there's disappointment written in the faces of the parents and the family members. And as a result, they give this newborn girl child the name Nakushi, which in Hindi means unwanted. Can you imagine being named unwanted? The emotional trauma of being reminded daily that you are of no value, that you are no good, and you are just a burden to the family. There are many Nakushis, unwanted ones, in India. A couple of years ago, there was a name-changing ceremony held in Mumbai, India. 285 girls who had been given the name unwanted participated in the ceremony where they got to choose their new name. The renaming ceremony was an attempt to give the girls a new identity. So 285 girls lined up. Wearing their best outfits, with braided hair, they looked so pretty. And they received certificates with new names, signifying their new identity. They were given a bouquet of flowers. A 15-year-old girl who had been named Nakushi by a disappointed grandfather said this. Now in school, my classmates and friends will be calling me this new name. And that makes me very happy. And she had chosen the new name, Ashmita, which means very tough. I tell you, sometimes we carry labels and names that the world has given to us. It affects how we see ourselves. It makes us feel so small on the inside. And as a result, we constantly look for love and affirmation in all the wrong places. But all through the Bible, you will see this. There are numerous examples of God giving new names to replace old identities. The new name reflects the new reality. We have a new identity in Christ. And none of us here have to live in bondage to the past. We can stand confident on this assurance that we are God's children, that you are God's beloved daughter, that you are God's beloved son, and we are his children, and he takes pleasure in us. That is the second key to resisting temptation. We come to the end now. I'm going to ask us to stand up. In the quietness of this moment, I want us to reflect on this question. 
As you think about yourself, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? I tell you that is your identity. If your identity is grounded in Christ, the first thing that ought to come to your mind is you are his child and he loves you deeply. If anything else were to come to your mind other than that, you have not grounded yourself in God's identity that he gives you in Christ. So I'm going to ask God to do a deep work in us today. I prayed about it and I believe God wants to do a name-changing ceremony here. And he wants to give some of you new names. So if that is you, I'm going to encourage you to just raise your hand and believe that there's a hand reaching out to you right now. Okay, just raise your hand and believe that there is the hand of the Father just taking you gently. And he wants to give you a new name. He wants to give you a new identity. So as we wait in silence and maintain a moment, let's hear the Spirit of God. And let's see the transforming work of the Spirit all through this place as God meets with each and every one of you in person and takes hold of your hand. Let's maintain a moment of silence and I'll close us in prayer. Father, you see several hands raised out to you. And we pray that you will reach out with your hand and that you will take us ever so gently. And Father, we pray that you will do what you alone can do. That Lord, the power of the enemy in this place will be canceled. That the lies that the enemy has sown into our heart will be torn down. That the power of Satan will be dismantled. And God, we will open ourselves to the truth of your word. And your truth will set us free. As we receive that new name. As we grasp our identity in Christ. As we start seeing ourselves as children loved by the Father. I pray, Father, that it will bring a tremendous amount of freedom. And joy and security and significance to each and every one of us that we will learn to hide ourselves in you, in who you call us to be, in who you see ourselves to be, that we will not live for the applause and the adoration of this world, but we will be content in knowing that we are loved by you unconditionally. So God, do that work to every hand that is reached out right now. Do that work and write this message indelibly in their heart that from the rest of this day, as they live life, it will take them in a different course because they believe in the truth of your word. Now, even as we leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. 
For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter 